you would like, you can open your Bibles to Psalm 36, the 36th Psalm, we'll be reading there in just a moment. Very good to see all of you. Appreciate the opportunity that is mine to be able to stand before you and to share some thoughts from God's Word that I hope will be beneficial to you. It is true, we have come together to worship our God, and we've had a few side thoughts given the group that's come together, those visiting, those who've come in light of Kevin's wedding. And we'll keep our thoughts on the worship of our God. But am I expressing my appreciation? Yes, it's for the opportunity I have to speak, but for those of us who've known Kevin and loved him, I guess for some of us it's close to 20 years now, I want to thank you, the brethren here, for giving him the opportunity that you've given him, for the blessing it has been to him to come into this environment and the encouragement you've been to him, the support you've been to him to allow him to grow as he has. He apparently loves it here. He wants to be here. I hope that's your plans going forward as well. But you've made it a blessing for him and you've allowed him to grow and mature and develop. And for that, I thank you. And when thinking about what to express on a day like today, there are people that are very dear to me that are here, some that, as I said, I've known 20 years. It's funny to find Wayne and Bob and Nancy here from Cookville that I've known a year and a half, and some that I've just met today. What makes all of this rewarding and special is the relationship that we have in our God. I wouldn't know any of you if it was not for the relationship that we share with our God. Yes, there are the, the family relationships that bind us, but for the most part, and what brings the most joy and what enriches our lives so is based on the relationship that we have with our God. When we think of Kevin and Janae, they would have not have been brought into the relationship they're about to enjoy had they not previously had that relationship with God, that God in His providence worked through that to bring them together, found them to be two godly people that wanted to join together as they'll do later. This relationship we have with our God because of who He is this God that we, as we said, have come together to praise, to exalt, to give glory to, that makes life worth the living because of all that He's done for us through His Son, the hope that He lays out there before us. And I wonder if you and I had the opportunity, if we passed out pen and paper and said, write one through five the attributes of your God that mean the most to you. This God that we serve, that we love and we cherish, what would be the top five attributes of His that you would list that, that impact you the most, that mean the most to you? And I wonder how similar it might be to this portion we're going to read here from Psalm 36, where in David, just listing some things as he gives praise to God, uses these words. Psalm 36, verse 5. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life, in your light, we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. 
So I wonder if we had that piece of paper and we were going to list our top five. You see loving kindness. You see mercy. You see righteousness. And from that we might go off on our own list describing his might and his power, his majesty, his glory, his wisdom. And then we might find our list is full. But I wonder how many of us would have added, as David mentions here, God's faithfulness. It can almost seem like an afterthought at times when we're listening to all these wonderful attributes of God to then say, oh yes, and he's faithful. But I don't know if there's a more critical component of our God as it concerns our relationship with him than our believing and knowing. He is faithful. Our relationship that is, that is based on his promises, his assurances, this that we call faith, that we cling to based on not what we see, but simply what he has assured us of, what he has promised us of. And for us to know concerning all of that, he is faithful. He is true. He is dependable. He is worthy of trust. Take faithfulness out of that. And what do you have in a relationship with God? To not be able to confidently believe that he will be true, dependable, worthy of trust. What does any relationship have without that? I don't mean to damper the mood any, but there are those among us who could reflect on what has killed a relationship. With just those few simple words, he was unfaithful to her. She was unfaithful to him. Do you need to say anything more? But what devastated, killed, and crushed a relationship? And yet here we are in a relationship with our God. And to confidently believe he is true, he is dependable, he is worthy of our trust in every respect so that we, as was read in the scripture reading from Lamentations 3 and 23, can sing, as is in our songs, great is your faithfulness. And there's a few areas I want us to look at this morning where that line is given so that we can have that confidence, especially in the given text. Your mind may already be going to some of those texts, but where in the scripture that's being offered and what is being set before us, encouraged to us, that statement, God is faithful. In other words, you take what is being said to the bank. You put your absolute confidence in this because you know it to be true. And absolutely it is true. Now, I don't know the makeup here. I didn't get the preview from Kevin of how many believers or unbelievers there might be among us. And whether there are unbelievers or it's simply something we want to share with others. For all that we can say about God's faithfulness. You can't help but think of how sad it is. The many who are out there who must be hoping, keeping their fingers crossed that God is not going to be faithful. He's not going to be true to his word. He's not going to be dependable. Who living lives of disobedience to God, who rejecting the gospel, refusing to submit to him, are hoping, they must be, that come the day of judgment, all that talk of punishment, all that talk of condemnation, all that talk of being rejected from his presence for all eternity, you know what, he really doesn't mean that. He's not going to follow through with that. That has to be what they are hoping. 
that he's not going to be true. He's not going to be dependable. He's somehow going to back out of that. You know what? He's just bluffing us, really. And yet, if you cannot believe the statements God has made concerning all of that, then what can you believe? Jeff led us in the discussion this morning. If we can't believe the creation account in Genesis 1, then what can we believe? If it can be undermined and doubted, or any area of God's Word can be undermined and doubted, then what can we confidently believe in? And so when God will make statements, I'd invite you to read a few of these with me. Romans, the second chapter. That when these statements are made, they are just as real and to be believed as confidently as anything God says. Who when in Romans... 2, verse 6, after talking about the righteous judgment of God, verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, here's God's promise. Here is what you can believe and are to believe. Indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Look in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. We'll just read a few of these before moving on, but making the point that God so clearly makes to all. When in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And as we said earlier, how many are hoping God's going to renege on that? He's going to back out on this promise. Who, finding themselves among this group that he goes on to list here, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And how many passages are like that, that make clear? You reject the will of God. You choose to be disobedient. You refuse to submit to His will. Understand clearly, this is what is coming. <coughs> Yet again, how many live that way? And I think they're just hoping that the family, after they're gone, will get a preacher who will get up there and at their funeral will talk about how this drunkard uncle of ours is still being welcomed into God's arms by angels. And the pretense, they play with all of it, as if that's all it takes, somebody at their funeral with a magical wand that can just wipe away all of how they lived and now heaven's theirs, just like God promised. To the faithful He promised it. To those obedient, he promised it. You think how many are going to be disappointed come the day of judgment to find out God is faithful. He meant every word that he said, and they're finding him to be true, much to their displeasure. But now to turn to just a few passages that, for us, we ought to find so encouraging that at critical stages in our walk with God, when we're being urged in one way or another to have inserted into the language, God is faithful, what that does to bolster our confidence, to compel us to act in accordance with what He has just said. Look, if you would, in 1 Corinthians 10. The first one we'll look at. Many of us could probably quote this. But in our walk with God, what are all of us going to encounter? 
temptation where Satan is going to present some allurement before us, some enticement. And again, it's not the being tempted that's the issue. Our Lord was tempted, but what are you going to do with that? Are you going to hold on to that thought? Are you going to turn it into more than it needs to be? Are you going to follow through with it? At whatever point Satan can tip the scale toward getting you to sin, he's going to come at you with that. And what do we do with that? Finding ourselves being tempted daily. Well, here's what we're promised. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so knowing we're all going to confront temptation, what is the assurance that we are given? You're not being met with anything that you cannot handle. Because before Satan can present that to you, God is going to weigh that. He's going to measure that. Is this something Mark can handle? If God determines Mark can't handle it, it's not coming Mark's way. He's not going to allow you to be tempted above what you are able. But if weighing it, determining Mark should be able to handle this, then Satan's allowed to present him with it. So you and I can know that. This isn't something that I'm finding so overwhelming, I don't think I can bear it. I don't think I can endure it. God has already given you the promise, you can and you need to believe that he has confidence that you can. Or if feeling overwhelmed, feeling so pressed by it, to know that there is a way of escape that is provided, so that if finding myself feeling backed in a corner, I just need to be able to look and there's going to be the way out of this because God has promised that to me. He will provide the way of escape. It's similar to the language you find in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 3. If you want to turn there. In 2 Thessalonians, three and verse 3, he says there, But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So when you and I are confronted with temptation, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to make the excuses for why it was more than I could handle and here's why I gave in? Only if I believe God is not being true to His Word. Am I going to act like it was something so overwhelming that nobody else has experienced and so they can't understand my circumstances and that's why I gave in to it? No, He's already made clear. There's no temptation overtaking you but such as is common to man. What you think nobody else has experienced, we could probably say, ask for a show of hands and have several raise their hand and say, sorry, I've experienced the same thing. I've had the same thing overwhelm me. I've been confronted with the same. But when given our being confronted with temptation and we are given this assurance, God is faithful. He will be true every temptation you encounter to make sure it's not more than you can handle, and if nothing else, provide the way of escape so that if you need to, you can jump out the window, you can run through the door, get out of it however you need to. It will be there for you. Which then, with that assurance, we then act on that. When our minds are beginning to work through the temptation, what we're going to do with it, whether to give in, whether to yield, or whether to stand firm in the faith, hopefully this will help us 
I have a God who is promised, who is faithful in enabling me to stand up to this. We ought to be more successful in the future with our temptations. But even when we do choose to yield, nobody forces us. If we said, why do we sin? We'd all have to admit, because I chose to. What do we do at that point? And God said, I shouldn't have. I should have been able to handle it. If nothing else, look for the way of escape. But you know what? I chose to give in. And we may feel there are some sins more devastating than others, some that we feel like we can quickly bounce back from, get God's forgiveness and move on. Others that are going to leave more lasting and deeper scars on us, physically perhaps, emotionally certainly, maybe spiritually. What do we do with those? Look, if you would, in 1 John 1. God knows us. He knows even in our striving to walk with Him, we are still going to sin. But He wants to, again, give us this assurance. And let's start reading in 1 John 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful passage that is. Where it acknowledges. If we try to say we haven't sinned, we're liars. The truth is not in us. Now John will go on to make clear and try to urge us our sinning should become less and less. It should be occurring much more infrequently in our life, but still, at the end of the day, there's going to be the occasional sin. At that point, still, there is the assurance and the promise that if we will confess that, God is faithful. You know, when it says that He's just, He is a just God. What He is doing is not based on some partiality, not favoritism. You've come into this relationship with Him through the shed blood of His Son, and to those in that relationship, He offers that promise. Be willing to own up to the sin. Be willing to confess the sin. You know, when David would talk about when I'd sinned, in his efforts to hide that, almost to run from it, I didn't want to deal with it, I didn't want to acknowledge it, but it crushed me. That's the guilty conscience that can't keep running from it, eventually needs to unload it, confess it to God, and I think even Christians can feel at times, what I did was too much. Yes, I've sinned, and there are all those others that I'm so glad God forgave. How can He forgive this? Well, if you believe that God is true, dependable, worthy of trust, and He tells you here to be willing to confess that, He is saying He will be true. He will Forgive that sin. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And what that does to just help us to grow in our love for such a God, that as badly as I mess up, as embarrassing as I may make it at times, for the shame that I may bring on Him, that He is still willing to cleanse me of that, to forgive me of that. Let us never think we've done too much, we've been too bad. 
but rather believing in such a God, taking those faults to Him in prayer, being willing to lay them at His feet, knowing that He will forgive them. Then look, if you would, in Hebrews 10 and 23. We come into this relationship with our God. We're going to be hit with temptation. We need His assurance in standing up to it. We need His assurance in believing He will forgive it. But then in so much of the day-to-day, maintaining the proper attitude and spirit, this world that wants to do all that it can to discourage us, to zap us of our zeal, to dishearten us. I like the language here in Hebrews 10 and verse 23. Again, familiar language. When for these that would seem to be on that brink of giving up for various reasons and And in light of all the assurances that he has been given throughout this letter, when he says, verse 23, let us hold fast, firm. Do not begin to loosen that grip whatsoever. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast without wavering. When this world wants you to waver, It wants to push you around. It wants to begin to create within you some doubt or where you're not as assured of yourself as you might have been. And he would use others to discourage you. All those promises. He is saying, hold fast the confession of our hope. Why you came into this for that blessed hope. What you are looking forward to, that blessed hope. And everything he has said that He is going to do to make it so that you finally see that blessed hope. He's going to do what He can. We love the language later in Hebrews 13, the latter part of verse 5, For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And why do we have that confidence? Because He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we can hold fast that confession of our hope without wavering. When earlier in Hebrews 4 and 16, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In time of need. When this world is weighing down so heavy that it might cause some to begin to waver, what are we told to do but go boldly before the throne of grace? All those assurances... We've been touching on some of the language back home in Romans 8, that beautiful chapter that just, you as a child of God need to just stand and bask in all that is yours as a child of God. Without hitting on all those passages, when you come there toward the end of Romans 8 and 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Do you need anything more to be said to keep you from wavering? If God is for us, who can be against us? The very next verse, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What are you going to be lacking? Nothing. What is God not going to provide to make this thing sure? Nothing. He who did not spare his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Everything that you need. God is going to provide. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised, promised all of that. What He's going to bless you with. What He's going to do to shore you up, to encourage you, 
to make that salvation, that, that ultimate goal, a reality. He's going to be true. He's going to be dependable. He's going to be worthy of trust. And then a last one that we'll look at. Look in 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians one. I've always found this encouraging, maybe in a roundabout way. We know who Paul's writing to, the church of Corinth, and in First Corinthians. To refer to a church as a train wreck might sound disrespectful and We probably wouldn't want anybody saying that of us, but I dare say any of us have ever worshipped anywhere that was like car rent. The kind of problems they had going on. The lack of love that they were showing for each other, the irreverence, the chaos that seemed to characterize their worships, just on and on and on you go with problems. And yet when you read the letter, you would think it's being written to some other group. When it opens up, let's just read here 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 4, when Paul writing to these, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful as it concerns these things that He's talking about. These who are eagerly looking for and awaiting for the coming of Christ. And then they're being established to the end. Again, you would think it almost was a different group that by the very next verse He's already talking about, but look how badly you're divided. Look at all the other problems that are going on. You could wonder, how do you reconcile this grand and glorious opening? Man, this is the, the premier church. They've got their act together. They've been blessed in so many ways. How do you reconcile that with what we find? To me, it just strikes me as a God who is hopeful, a God who is optimistic, who even to a group like Corinth can try to give that assurance. This can still happen. Good things can still happen through them, through what God would bless them with. They can see that ultimate day of Jesus Christ. They can, as he says, be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what God wants to see happen. And to that end, he is faithful. But the other side of that that speaks to all of us, will we be faithful? Whatever became of the church of Corinth, it was ultimately going to come down to them. God can do His part. Would they do their part? Address the problems they had. Make the corrections that they needed to. But as I said earlier, you know, for you here in Cortez, for those who will go back to Athens, Georgia, for those of us who will go back to Cookville or wherever else you may have come from, as I said, we should be thankful. We're not the train wreck Corinth was. And if God can say to a church like these, I'm going to bless you. I want to see this thing through to the end. The good things that you can accomplish. 
what can transpire and be brought about. That if he could express that to these, how much more so to those of us in our different groups who would like to believe, thankfully, that we're doing better than this. We're striving harder to be pleasing to our God. How much more so would he say to us, whatever may be lacking, God's going to shore it up. Whatever gaps may be there, God's going to fill those. I do fear at times that we can begin to keep God at a distance. We think Him less interested in the church in 2020 than He was in the first century, less concerned about souls being saved. We're just kind of out there on our own in our given locale, plugging away, doing as we can. Instead of believing, we have a God who has promised to each one of us He will be faithful to you here in Cortez, to those of us in Cookville, back in Athens, wherever you may be. You are gathering with a group that has a God who has promised to be faithful, to see all of your efforts through to the end. Don't begin to doubt. Does he really care in 2020? Is he as concerned about lost souls as he was in the first century? Of course he is. The God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth is still the God who desires such an end. To see us built up, strengthened, established, but again, it will come back to us. Will we be found faithful? He will be. At every turn, He will be. We sometimes say that at the invitation. When the, whether it's the talents or on other occasions. What is said to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. That as God would view us, you proved yourself true. You proved yourself dependable. You proved yourself worthy of His trust in how you carried out in thick and thin, when it wasn't always easy, when it was difficult. But you proved yourself that way. And to those, enter into the joy of the Lord. If you're here this morning and you've not yet rendered that obedience to the will of God, you've not yet come into that relationship with God where He wants to bless you. Bless you with the kind of relationships we've spoken of here earlier. Bless you with the relationship with Him, with His Son, with the Spirit, so that heaven can truly be your home. You want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You do not want to hear, depart from me, worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. You can make that decision this morning. You can make things right with God. And if there's any way we could help you, we'd want you to let it be known as we stand and sing.